Grab your Bible, we're looking at Psalm 22. That speaks it to us. God works by His Spirit through His Word. We want to understand and we want to see Him shape our lives. So let's pray and ask Him to be at work. Fellow indeed, please do give us attention and focus as we hear Your Word. Uh, please do open our heads and hearts. Please work in us. Uh, please shift the way we think. Uh, give us a clearer sight of reality. And uh, please give us confidence and trust uh, in you, the God who speaks through Jesus. Amen. Psalm 22 is remarkable. Uh, Centuries before Jesus was even born, the Holy Spirit described his death. He described details. As we read them, you notice the, the mocking, the piercing... Uh, Lot's cast for his clothing. But what struck me more is his insight into Christ's inner life. This psalm shows us Jesus experiencing the horror of his crucifixion and experiencing it with confidence in God who forsook him. There are some thoughts about how we pray along the way as we read it. It gives us some sense of the horror of death and judgment. It underlines and highlights that God can be trusted to come through on his promises. But here's the question, here's the answer to the question we might not even have thought to ask. What did Jesus think when he was hanging on the cross? What did Jesus think? when he was hanging on the cross. Jesus quoted the first words of this psalm uh, as he hung. We read the countdown towards the cross in Mark's gospel earlier this year. We heard Jesus predict his suffering and his death and his resurrection, saying that he would give his life as a ransom for many, reinterpreting the Passover meal as a pointer to his death. In Gethsemane, we saw him feel such sorrow and dread at the sight of God's wrath approaching that he felt like he was already dying. He was betrayed and deserted, judged worthy of death by Israelites and leaders, handed over for crucifixion by the Gentile nation's authority. Soldiers bowed to him in mock respect moments after they stripped him and clothed him in fake finery. Then they dressed him in his own clothes, Uh, they led him out of Jerusalem, they stripped him, crucified him, divided the clothes that he'd no longer need, and cast lots to decide who got what. While he hung dying, passers-by derided him, wagging their heads. Chief priests and scribes mocked him as obviously not the Christ. Obviously not someone the Lord God would call my son, let alone his beloved son. Three hours after he was nailed to the cross, darkness descended. Another three hours later, Jesus was near death when he said the first words of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why those words from this psalm? Well, because the whole psalm is an insight into Christ's experience. Whatever event or or vision led this psalmist to write these words, 
They speak better about Christ's experience on the cross than they spoke about his experience. The whole psalm fits Jesus better than its writer. The whole psalm fits Jesus better than its writer. In a letter to the early churches, the apostle Peter talks about the salvation Jesus has brought to those who trust him. Uh, when he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It's revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The ancient prophets, they couldn't quite understand. They couldn't see clearly what the Spirit at work in them was pointing to. They spoke words which meant something to them, but they knew they didn't understand everything they said. They knew there was more. They predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Sometimes the Spirit revealed sufferings. Other times he revealed glories. In this psalm, he reveals both. Gives us a window into Christ's experience of suffering and his confident expectation of subsequent glories. Suffering and glory hinge in this psalm on verse 21. Verses 1 to 21, they're an intensely personal prayer. Uh, We listen in as the psalmist asks God why he's had no help. And then goes back and forth between describing his circumstances to God and asking God to come and help. It's personal, it's him and God, but heard by others, it's in the psalm. Him laying out his experience to God and describing it and talking his relationship with God in the midst of it. I think that's helpful for us as we pray to see that. Uh, Here's one of the secondary implications from reading this psalm. Uh, We don't need to separate out thinking about our circumstances from speaking to God and asking him to act. It would be better if we didn't. Whether it's the struggles or joys, we can shift back and forth between describing our circumstances to God who cares for and loves us and calling on him to come through on his promises. Verses 1 to 21, we hear Jesus do that. Jesus talked to God about how things are and how he sees his circumstances and speak to God about who he is and calling on God to act in the midst of his suffering, asking him for help. Then the focus shifts. The, the psalm hinges around 21, verse 21. The psalm, uh, psalmist then speaks hope, uh, his confident expectation. Uh, the prayer in the first half of verse 21 asks God to come through on what he's already promised. Then, his confident, then we hear his confident expectation that God will come through on what he's promised. That's why he speaks there in the second half of verse 21 as if God has already answered as if he has already been rescued. He says what he'll say to his fellow Israelites when God, after God answers. 
He speaks to God and to the congregation about how things will be then. We shift from listening in to his intentional, intensely personal prayer to being drawn into his experience of salvation and proclamation of praise. So Psalm 22, it helps, lets us listen in to Christ's prayer as he suffered and his confidence in the subsequent glories. That's kind of the big picture of the psalm. That's the big movement in it. As we follow the line of the psalm, I'm going to speak about his experience, but I decided to put headings up that are uh, worded as my attempts to summarize something of what he says. So let's, let's follow our way uh, through the line of the psalm. Verse 1, the psalmist feels forsaken, but he still calls God his God. And that's why it stings. His God has forsaken him. His God is far from saving him. His God has heard him groan and weep and cry for help, but he has had no help. He asks why. It's not how God usually responds to trust. It's not like him. Verse 3, he is holy. Uh, He is praised as the one who kept his promises to Israel. He trusted, they trusted, and he delivered them. Israel trusted God to help, and he didn't leave them hanging. He didn't leave them waiting for help that never came. They entered the promised land on the strength of God's promise. When in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 7 to 8, sorry, I forgot to do a slide for this. Deuteronomy 31, 7 to 8, they entered the promised land on the strength of God's promise when Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall go in with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you, he will be with you. He will not leave you or, nor forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And Joshua and the people trusted God to come through on what he promised. And he was with them. He didn't forsake them. They weren't shamed for trusting God. They weren't shamed for trusting God by enemies who defeated them. They weren't mocked for trusting God who didn't come through. But the psalmist is. He's had no help. He is mocked for trusting, verse 6. He tells the Lord he's seen as a maggot, not a man. He's scorned by everyone, despised by the people. I think that's he's scorned by every, like that's not just the nations, it's even the Israelites, everyone. All who see him mock him. Mock the one who's had no help. Sarcasm drips when they say, verse 8, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. What they really mean is he doesn't trust in the Lord, that's why he's had no help. God won't rescue him because God does not delight in him. The devastating weight of their taunts is that they say the psalmist lied when he claimed to to trust God. They say he lied when he claimed that the God loves him. He tells God what everyone who sees him thinks of him. It's what Jesus heard people say at his trial, isn't it? 
what he heard as he hung dying. They all think his claim to trust God is untrue. His claim to be loved by God, to be his beloved son, is a lie. Verse 9, he speaks to the Lord about his lifelong trust. He was born trusting because the Lord made him trust. His entire life has been lived leaning on the Lord, knowing God as his God, treating God as his God. He's mocked for false faith, but his entire life has been faith, has been trust. His entire life has been acting as if what God says is true because he's absolutely convinced that what God says is true. He cries, verse 11, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Verse 12, 13, he describes his danger as he speaks to God. Pictures people as beasts, many strong, well-fed bulls uh, ready to trample him. Roaring lions ready to rip him to pieces. Verse 14, 15, they're about how he feels. Weak as water. Like his body is already decaying and, he, and his body can no longer hold his bones together. Far from firm, his courage and his hope melt like wax in the fire. Unable to do anything, his strength, if you can call it that, is like a broken piece of brittle pottery. His mouth dry, so dry, his tongue sticks. There's little left of him. He's here because he's had no help. But look at the last line of verse 15. He says it in other words. So weak that he can do little else, he says to God, his God, the Lord, you lay me in the dust of death. He says to God, you're killing me. Now, it was their plan, the Father and the Son. The Christ delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He came for this. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. But the experience of it was dreadful. See, this is the true horror of the cross. Christ's Father, whom he trusted, killing him. The Father looking on his beloved Son as if he was not pleased. God looking at Jesus as if Jesus had done the sins it took men, women, and, gener- and children generations to do. Jesus facing the hell he warned others about. The Father poured out his just and fair and holy and passionate punishment on Jesus. What humans do demanded that something be done. And God did it. There are some things that even we know, <laughs> there are some things even we know something sh- no one should get away with. And some things even we know no one should get away with. It seems unfair when anger lashes out and leaves permanent damage and the angry go unpunished. It seems unfair when hatred strikes and the hater thrives. 
It seems unfair when the poor suffer and the rich who fed off their misery live the good life. There's some things we know no one should get away with. And God knows exactly what should be done, exactly what should be done about everything. And he did it to Jesus. That's the true horror of the cross. That God treated Jesus as if his life was full of anger and hate and selfish injustice. As if he abused his privilege, as if he used his strength against the weak. That his lust and and desire for profit excuse objectifying others told lies to avoid being known. His fathers poured out his just and fair and holy and passionate fury against accidentally scars on his good creation. Words and actions that do damage to humans made in his image. His beloved father poured on Jesus his just, fair, holy, passionate fury against our words and actions and attitudes which distrust his goodness and reject his rule. He treated the one who always and only lived to please him, who went to his death, who went to his horrendous death in obedience to him, He treated him as if he had lived in deliberate, thankless disobedience. We screamed at God, I'd be better off if you didn't rule me. So on the cross, the son did see the father's face full of just anger and perfect vengeance. It was their plan. The father and son agreed. But it was dreadful. first time in time or eternity Jesus felt alone no kindness from the father only the crushing pain of death and judgment that we deserve his father killing him laying on him sorry laying him in the dust of death verse 16 back to speaking his suffering to God. Wild dogs uh, stay back while, while their they're human male has the energy to fight them off, but these dogs close in. Evildoers move in. They pierce his hands and feet. He sees his bones where flesh has been ripped away. He sees his enemies staring and gloating. They know he won't need his clothes when he's dead, so they divide them up and decide who gets what by casting lots. But still he cries to God who's been so far from saving him. He calls to God the Lord who brought him to death. Verse 19, Do not be far off, O you my help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. His evil enemies had closed the book on him. But still he cries for help and deliverance. And the second half of verse 21, he shifts suddenly. He changes from asking God to save him to say instead, 
You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered my cry. You have not finally forsaken me. This is his hope. This is his expectation. Even while he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is confident that God will come through on what God has promised. So the psalm turns. It hinges uh, from Christ's sufferings to his confidence in the subsequent glories. The rest of the psalm is his hope. Not his vague, everything should possibly, probably be okay hope. His confident expectation that God will answer his prayer. Because he's asking God to come through in his promise. He's confident God will come through on his promise. When he does, then verse 22, the psalmist will no longer be shamed and mocked by Israelites who are convinced he's an example of false faith. He will tell them God's name. He will point them to God's character. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And speaking by the Spirit of Christ, the psalmist looks past his sufferings to the day he'll say to the congregation, the day he'll say to assembled Israel, verse 23, You who fear the Lord, praise him, all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. He's saying, praise God. The one who seemed finally forsaken was not finally forsaken. Praise God, the one who was despised and abhorred by everyone else was not despised and abhorred by the Lord. He accepted the afflicted one. He made his face shine on him. He heard him and answered his cry. From the cross, Jesus looked beyond He looked beyond his gospel proclaimed after God raised him. From verse 25 on, we have words blending as he speaks to God and speaks to the congregation. He says to God, verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. The people who mock me now praise me as God's faithful servants. And after his resurrection, Peter, who denied him at his death, proclaimed... Acts 2.36, Acts 2.36. After his resurrection, Peter, who denied him at his death, proclaimed, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that day, 3,000 did. Then many more, including vicious persecutors like Paul. Praised Jesus as God's faithful servant. They and we participate in Christ's salvation. That's what verse 26 is getting at. The people participating in in the rescue, the people participating in the thank offering that Jesus brings uh, to celebrate that God has raised him. Jesus knew his resurrection beyond death would be the turning point not only for him, but for the whole world. Verse 27, people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Verse 28, God, the ruler over all. I suspect verse 29 glimpses God's people 
uh, with an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for the day of resurrection. Verse 30 clearly sees generations praising Jesus who God raised and praising God who raised him. The ancient psalmist spoke it. Even as his father forsook him, even as his father treated him as if he had done what we've done, as his father killed him, Jesus trusted his father to come through on the promise. His confidence was well placed because God did raise Jesus from death to live and reign eternally over all things. For the joy that was set before him, he did endure the cross, despising its shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of God in heaven. The last line of the psalm says that generations and generations, what generations, sorry, the last line of the psalm says what generations and generations have said since God raised Jesus, that he has done it, that God came through on his promise that God raised Jesus, that God made Jesus both Lord and Christ. We who trust Jesus, we praise him and his Father for what they have done. We might have thought to ask, what did Jesus think when he was hanging on the cross? Psalm 22 shows us the Spirit of Christ revealed it centuries before Jesus was even born. The true horror of Jesus forsaken and killed by his Father. And his deep confidence that beyond suffering came glory. Because Jesus, who always lived to please his Father, suffered... Because he suffered what we deserve, we can share his confidence about subsequent glories. See, none of us could expect anything other than the horror of judgment if Jesus hadn't faced it. Uh, Without Jesus, our Sam, well, I would describe pain and suffering and judgment and would acknowledge that we deserve it. It would have no hope coming at the end, simply judgment on an explanation why. But Jesus did die and he is raised. All of us who trust Jesus as Savior and Lord can share his confidence because of what he did. If you already trust Jesus or from the moment that you begin to trust Jesus, you can know this confidence. You can know with confidence that God has forgiven you, that you are under his care, that he will bring you home. Jesus faced the punishment you deserve so you can be spared. Jesus is raised and you will be raised. Death will not be the end. You can look to the day of your death and to the day of judgment without fear. You can look with confidence which, comes that no, which, confidence which comes from knowing that God, our Father, raised Jesus. You can live now proclaiming that God has done it. Reminding yourself of the great rescue that he has brought in his Son. 
pointing us uh, to God's love displayed in the horror of the cross and his, and it's his faithfulness scene in his resurrection of his son. Calling men, women and children who don't yet know Jesus to come as they are and find life and forgiveness in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your son who willingly went to the cross. Thank you that you sent him to suffer as we deserve. That you who love him forsook him. That he bore our guilt and shame as you treated him as if he had done what we have done. Thank you that he went through it for the joy set before him with the firm expectation that you would raise him. Thank you that you have raised him and that he now sits at your right hand in glory. Thank you that we see you as the God who is rich in mercy and forgives, the God who is faithful to your promise, the God who is able to save your people. Father, please do, while we await the day when we see him face to face, cause us to keep proclaiming what you have done to one another that we might stand firm and not lose heart, to those who don't yet know Jesus that they might turn and find forgiveness and eternal life in him. We ask it through your Son. Amen.